Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible guests from around the world. Uh, and this particular guest that I've got on today, I have been chasing for several months. I saw him on, uh, I think, LinkedIn. I bumped into him about seven or eight months ago and I've been following his posts and I'm absolutely inspired. Fester Sakambusoy is the Police and Crime Commissioner for Bedfordshire Police in the UK. Um, he is, at the time that uh, he took on the position, he was the first black Briton to take on that role of police and crime commissioner. So uh, really breaking some barriers there. And currently he is the only police and crime commissioner from a black and ethnic minority background. So a lot of barriers broken. I'm really intrigued to hear what you've got to say, Festus. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Before we go into the interview, I was talking to you about, you know, what human-centered leadership means to me and what the podcast is all about. And we had some fun. And I always believe fun in the workplace is absolutely critical because that's what makes us human. You know, we're all human at the end of the day. And behind you, there was a huge poster of a football team and I didn't recognize it straight away. But do you want to just tell me what happened there? Well, yeah, I... Um... <clears throat> At the National Black Police Association's um, uh, annual conference, which was being held in Bedfordshire, my very first year as Police and Crime Commissioner, there was an auction for a Luton Town uh, football club um, uh, jersey, signed jersey. Uh, of course, they've just been promoted to the championship and they're doing extremely well uh, at the moment. And uh, so it was quite a highly sought after thing. But um, there was one particular person in that conference, in that auction, who loved Luton Town Football Club more than me. I'm an Arsenal man through and through, you see. Uh, but I thought, you know what? Just because I feel like it, <laughs> I'm going to just outbid him. <laughs> and um, and that was the assistant chief constable for Bedfordshire Police. So we uh, both got into a bidding war towards the end and I outbid him. Yes, and I've, and I've got the, um, I've, I've got it now. You don't particularly want it in your office, do you? No, but you know, it wasn't Arsenal one. I would like it more. But um, I've got very, I've got some very very special plans for yeah. that. It's been here now for over two years. Um, but I've, for about two years, I've got plans for it. Very special plans. Is the assistant chief constable still talking to you? Or has he got over it now? <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should say that. Uh, no, no, he he's an amazing amazing fellow. Um, his his attention to detail is. You know, uh, impeccable. Um, he breathes uh, policing. He's yeah. just a good, good, good man, uh, and he so far has been a a, a, um, a real treat to work with. And he'll be very much missed when he retires in a couple of months' time. 
That's brilliant. And a great accolade for any leader, to be honest. Talking about leadership, Professor, you know, what, one thing I've noticed about you, aside from the fact that, you know, the first black Britain uh, and the only BAME police crime commissioner, so you would obviously stand out to me. I was a vice president of the National Black Police Association back in the time, back in 1999, when we first formed the NBPA. Um, so I'm all, I always have a keen eye in terms of what inclusivity and diversity looks like in the police service and the public sector. So congratulations. I know it's belated, but congratulations on your post. And uh, thank you for pushing forward and, and, and doing all the things that you're doing. Because I look at you on LinkedIn and you're seen, you seem to be everywhere. You know, is it that you don't like being in the office like I used to be? Uh, or is it that you're just so stretched in your diary? When you're in public service... My view is that, um, you need, yes, you need to do your job, but the public also need to see you doing your job. I mean, there are those people who think that I spend all my time on social media, and when in fact I probably only post about half of what I do, because uh, a, a good chunk of it is they're quite sensitive, and I can't put them in the public domain. So if you think I'm busy with what you see on social media, uh, just imagine what life actually really is like. Oh, of course. I, I know that this is only the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? But also, I do believe in the fact that there are certain people who need to see people like me. Yeah. So I have a choice to use my position to just do the stuff that's in the background uh, and I can still be effective. Yes. Or I can do what I do, choose to be visible, make myself very accessible, to uh, the public, to the media, not because I need any attention. I I'm very, very cool with myself. I don't mm. need the attention. But, you know, there's a young Asian lad in Bradford or in, in Essex. There's a, a, a white working class girl, you know, in Kent mm. or, in, or in East Ham. And there's a young black boy in, in Birmingham or in um, Rochdale who needs to see someone like me. Yeah on TV, not playing football, not, you know, in music or in entertainment, um, doing what I do. And so I, that comes at a cost, by the way, um, to me personally, but I think it's a price worth paying for those our young people, especially. This resonates with me so strongly uh, because when I joined the police service, um, and I remembered yesterday, it's four weeks and 40 years and two weeks ago when I joined the police service, a long time ago. And it, unfortunately, it reminds me of, of how old I am as well, you know. <laughs> but I also recognised that I was a brown speck in a sea of white and that I had this... I had this leadership responsibility to be visible for people who who needed to see people like me. So, and that, I, I completely resonate with what you're saying in terms of the cost to you as an individual. Um, I've tried to explain this to so many people in the past. What would you say is the cost to you as an individual to do that, to be that pioneer, to be that visible representation? The one is the expectation that sometimes people have as well. Um, uh, it's it's a bit overwhelming sometimes, uh, and of course there's the you know invitations to you know come on podcasts. Mm. Um, uh, <laughs> people chasing you for months and months and months. <laughs> and then it's that, look, I mean, that that's that's that is that's the least of my worries. Um, but obviously now with social media, um, you also attract some very unpleasant individuals. Yes, um, and. I was just thinking about this the other day that 
the more you put your head above the parapet, the more likely you are to get hit with something. And you're, you know, and when being having a bald head as well, you know, it's a bit more painful, you know, <laughs> uh, when people throw stuff at you. But um, there, there is that. The other part of it is this. Um, I am in the Conservative Party. I am also in policing. You know, those are two areas that someone of my skin tone should not apparently <laughs> be involved with. Yeah. You know, in fact, I was discussing this with, you know, Beth Rigby on Sky News yesterday, and, and that show's going to be aired tomorrow, tomorrow evening around nine o'clock. Uh, and that is, that is constantly have to, constantly have to keep explaining to people white, black, whatever, you know, and everything else, every shade in between, why you are who you are. Um, it's, it's difficult, but I've come to accept and, and embrace it. Because I see it as more of an education piece, not a, a how dare you thing. I, I used to find it quite exhausting when you're repeating the same lines over and over again. Uh, and, and actually, as you quite rightly say, not to try and come across as being frustrated or angry because every person who asks the question is a new person. Yes. So they're hearing the answer for the first time. But for you, that answer is like on repeat all the time. It's quite exhausting. But, you know, attitude is so important. Like you probably had, you know, people from, you know, your community saying, look, you know, how dare you join the police? They, they stigmatize us. They do this to us. You know, you're a sellout. You're a traitor. You know, I get that mm -hmm. as well. And there was a point when I was thinking, well, I don't have to answer your questions. You know, would you ask that to a white person? Would you ask that to, you know, this person? But I now see it actually as a blessing, actually a real opportunity to actually explain to people that, you know, I'm here within policing because, not because I think policing is perfect to everyone, but because I actually want to make it better. And I'm actually in a very, very powerful position to actually do that. You know, so would you rather I was here and here are some of the impact that I've had already, and I can tell you what those are, because I understand the nuances, the challenges, the systemic issues, and I can fix that because I have the power to do so, and here are the people who are benefiting from it, or would you rather I stay in your shoes and moan about it, and nothing changes? And that, that, starts, that, that then lowers the tension a little bit. Uh, and um, so now I just choose to see things you know, as a uh, an opportunity to educate and to engage and to inspire rather than, you know, how dare you ask me that question kind of thing. No, I understand that uh, completely. And, and just on this issue around representation, I mean, um, you know, f all the time that I've ever been involved in the police service, 40 years plus, as I say now, we've always been talking about diversity, representation, inclusivity. We've used different languages and different terminology over the, that, that space of time. Um, I sense that we're still not there yet in terms of representation, in terms of diversity and what inclusion really means. What does it mean to you? Representation and diversity could be looked at in different ways. Mm. But for me, I want to start with the benefits of it as a starting point. Otherwise, you don't want to have diversity for the sake of it. Because that does not help anyone. Exactly. Yeah. Including those from diverse communities, right? You want to get the best and the brightest in the best jobs for them. Right? Uh, so not all um, Asian women can be chief constables. In the same way that not all white men can be chief constables. Uh, but those who can, 
should absolutely get the chance to become exactly that without any barriers being put in the way. But so I start with why we need to have this. And my view has always been that imagine having a government department. And we're not even talking about the politicians here because that's a different, you know, that's a sub, that's a, a, a symptom of the electorate decision making, right? But you're talking about the officials in the Home Office or in the MOJ or the Department of Education. And I'm talking about top, and people, you never see these people. You never see them. But they are the director generals of government departments. They are the top, top senior civil servants. They are the ones who make things happen. If all of these people, when they get together on the implementation of a government policy, we're all from one educational background, one social background, one ethnic background, making decisions for an increasingly diverse population, not just in, in fact, of one gender as well, by the way, um, Imagine them making, a decision, making decisions about the implementation of government policy for an increasingly diverse population. I don't care how good you are and I don't care how aware you are. We are all shaped by our own set of experiences. It's just we can't, we can't separate our experiences from our decision making any more than we can separate our DNA from our, from our bodies. You know, we are in, they're all intertwined. So, and I, this is one for me, that's one of the better, one of the reasons why I think we do need to have a diverse uh, decision-making environment, hence why we need to have diversity coming in so they can get to that top eventually. Uh, and there's a big difference, isn't there, between visible uh, diversity, what I would term as demographic diversity, and cognitive diversity. And yes. as he quite rightly says, you could have people from all genders, all colours, all races, all have been to the same college, same university, and therefore will all think alike. Exactly right. So what is the point in having a rainbow of a boardroom if they're all going to speak with the same voice? For me, diversity goes it goes way beyond that. Diversity is about diversity of thought. This is a great point you make because, you know, look, the reality is that we have um, a black and brown-skinned people who deny the existence of racism, for example. Right? And then, but then you have white people who acknowledge and accept that there is racism and something needs to be done about it. Who would you rather have in a room? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would rather have the person that, that accepts it and, and knows that, no, that something needs to be done about it. You, you, you have people in society today who believe that there are no social structures that prevent us from doing things. Um, how you approach those social structures is a different matter in terms of your psychology, but there are challenges there. You know, I'd rather have people who recognize this, um, but also see that it is not the be all and end all of people's um, aspirations, but it is an obstacle that needs to be addressed or worked around, then to have people who are in denial. My, my attitude around diversity is that it is very, very important. It is not just about the colour of the skin, it's also about our thought processes and our backgrounds and our social class, because we, uh, yeah, we do need rich people as well, don't get me wrong. You know, we, we need people who have created wealth. We need all to be around. But my problem is when we start having Senior decision makers come from one monolithic environment, making decisions for a much, much diverse environment. That would always cause problems. I knew there was a reason why I wanted you on here, because we think so alike. <laughs> it's great to see that. But, I mean, from an organisational point of view, 
in order for that cognitive diversity to come into the organization, we have to create the environment where we accept a difference in views. You know, this. Yes. Yeah. Particularly public sector organizations will have this subtext where, you know, we talk about this is how things were always done. I've heard that phrase so many times myself in, in different language or different um, uh, sort of terminology, but essentially the same. What do we need to do in the police service to create that environment where a difference in thought is a welcomed and, uh, and something that we embrace? I go into meetings sometimes with the most senior level of police in, in the whole of the country. Yep. With police chiefs council, the, the most, I mean, the chief constables and PCCs get together. And, you know, I'm the only black person there. And this happens. Yeah. And I've never thought, I mean, there was the initial, when I first started, I, I did feel a little bit, you know, overwhelmed. But one thing that I, I can say to all of these men and women is that I never was made to feel as though my views did not matter. Yeah. Not once. In fact, I felt there was a desire to actually listen to me more, that they actually wanted to learn. So at the top level, I saw a genuine desire to actually listen and understand uh, in whatever I was talking about, whether it's on diversity or around you know, the use of uh, police uh, powers, disproportionality, whatever the case might be, you know, cutting crime, all that kind of stuff. I found that. So that was the first thing. The second thing I also realized that it takes a lot of courage to be willing to speak up about what is obvious to you but might not be obvious to other people. Very true. So we think that it's only in schools where, you know, you're afraid to put your hand up, you know, because you might get the answer wrong. But this happens in boardrooms as well. You know, this happens at the, in, in government departments. This happens at the highest level. Yeah, this is way beyond pleasing now. This is way beyond pleasing. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it takes a lot of courage, to, a lot of self-confidence to be able to speak up. And that's something that I have always chosen to do. Uh, and not to worry about what, uh, how I might look. I, I say what I feel in always a very respectful, considerate and balanced way. That's second. But the third thing as well is there that I find that, that I think needs to be done is how do you then translate this at an organisational wide level? And that therein lies, I think, the, probably the biggest challenge. And I think one thing that we see in policing and in some um, uniform discipline environment is that everything is kind of like a you know command and control and thing. You can't change values on a command and control basis. It takes persuasion and willingness to be open and talk about things. And I don't know if all uh, people in leadership either feel comfortable enough to have that dialogue with their team or have the courage to say what is blindingly obvious. What I'm finding, Festus, and this is a positive, is I do a lot of work around emotional intelligence with a whole wide range of organisations, and including a number of police forces. Uh, and I do assessments on, on individual leaders around where their emotional intelligence levels are. And I'm finding that there are more and more emotionally intelligent leaders in the police service now. So it is a different 
environment from when I left the police service eight years ago uh, and this command and control kind of style of leadership. Uh, you know, I talk about six styles of leadership and command and control would be at one end. At the other end would be coaching leadership or, you know, affiliative leadership, people, people-centered leadership. And I'm finding there's more of that coming in. But there's still a way to go because it is, I think you get to a certain leadership level where actually it's no longer about shouting out commands. It's about influencing and it's about persuasion. And the way that I, I would like to think that my style of leadership, uh, it's about a very, very, very strong use of soft power. Describe that for me. I've heard this term before, but I want the listeners to really understand this. For me, it's about... You know you've got power, but it takes a lot of wisdom to know that you actually don't need to use it. Yeah, great. Uh, And I have had to grow to learn about the the power that I have as a police and crime commissioner. But I hardly have to use those powers in the way that most people will think I could do, which... I'm sure others might probably do. Most of the things that I get done, I get done because I can pick up a phone and talk to uh, a superintendent or a chief constable or a sergeant or a PC or the chief constable even or fellow PCC and just have a chat and say, look, can you do me a favor, mate? So in, in essence, what you're saying is <clears throat> leadership for you is about building relationships and then you, then you can leverage those relationships with conversations. Yes, but you have to build that relationship. You have to. And, you know, and I think the way that I do that, and one thing I found is that in any environment, and I run a business before I came into this role where I, you know, I had about 60, 50, 60 people working for me. No, I, don't, I can't think of any working environment where nobody wants to be treated like a human being. Not one. You know, there's this um, program that used to be called, um, where they have this song where uh, we all want to be in a place where everybody knows our name. Cheers. It's called Cheers. Cheers. You know, um, we all want to be in an environment where some, everybody knows our name. And there's something powerful about that. And I don't always remember names, but I remember people. I remember events. I remember what we talked about. It could be 10 years ago. I will remember what we talked about. I do have that kind of a memory. Uh, so, and then eventually you can check out people's names during the conversations <laughs> from them. Oh yeah, I remember you. I know you're cool, yeah. I'm awful with names. I remember people's faces and I remember our conversations. Yes. I'm, I'm a bit like you in that, in that regard. People, everybody wants that. So I will, you know, whether it's the cleaner, whether it's the estates, people who move our furniture around, I genuinely do not see any difference in them whatsoever to the chief constable. And we'll have a chat about what they do on the weekend, about their kids. If one person tells me about, oh, well, my son has got autism, whatever it is, three weeks' time, I remember that information. And we'll talk about it. And I think people appreciate that. I used to come into work an hour early just so I could sit down and have a cup of tea with a cleaner. The mm. stuff that I learned from the cleaner was just incredible. And, yeah. and I always found that I had the cleanest office, by the way. <laughs> yes, you know, and if I, um, there's a, we've got a lady here called, I just call her Auntie. She's an elderly lady. You might have seen a picture of, of, of that I took with her. Uh, she's the, she cleans, she's one of the cleaners in, the, in our building and she comes to my office to, to clean it. And I always say hello to her, but this particular day I thought I'd just have a chat with her 
and she was just amazing. And I used to think that the longest serving person that I ever came across in this building had been here for about 20 years. When I spoke with the auntie, she'd been working here for about 26 years. It's the unseen veterans, isn't it? And, and for me, um, I consider that is, that, that is power. I mean, there's this um, uh, book on the five love languages, right? And I think in the workplace, there's, it's a similar thing because every time we exercise this kind of uh, emotional intelligence with people, we are creating a credit in their emotional bank account that is specifically belonging to us. Now, you see many organizations, when I go into organizations, talking about culture and culture change and emotional intelligence, uh, immediately, almost immediately, you get from some organizations, well, how does that, what's the tangible benefits of this? How does that affect my bottom line? And, And I find that really frustrating because, as you say, fundamentally we know in our heart of hearts where you've got people working those people want to be treated as human beings they want to feel valued appreciated heard and seen if you get that they will work beyond the minimum standard they will deliver more for you oh absolutely and the thing as well is this in terms of the bottom line that we keep talking about you know bottom line is not just about your pnl it's also about your public reputation it's also about how your organization comes out of a crisis and every organization that deals with other human beings, in other words, every organization that is there to make profit, will, in some way, shape or form, at some point in its lifetime, if it lasts more than a day, will face a crisis. Your people are the ones that will determine in many respects how well you come out of that crisis. And if you're, and in the world of social media nowadays, people will leak stuff. If you're a nasty organization and a crisis management, a crisis moment comes, they're going to write stuff about your business anonymously that, well, I saw this coming. How do you put a price on that? Yeah, one of the critical things that we have to try and create in organizations is this, is this sense of trust. Trust in the organization as a foundation of the organization. If your people trust you, you trust your people, then you are more likely to work at a much deeper level together. So how do you create that trust in the organization with your people? I, for me, what I've tried to do is to always be consistent. Um, this is by no means a way of saying that, well, and this is a kind of a laissez-faire environment. People can just do whatever they like. Uh, they know my values. They know my vision. They know who I am and what I'm about. And it's amazing how everybody potentially follows the trajectory of movement of a leader. You set the standard. Somehow people just start to morph into, you know, the mold of the the uh, leadership figure. So... Yeah, I mean, it's what we call the leadership shadow, right? Absolutely. And, and in fact, when I was recruiting the, the top leadership team in my office here, I made it very clear to them that I would judge them by how well they treat the staff in this office. And I said, well, I want to know, I want to make sure that everyone in my office is doing well, they're happy in their job, they, they're delivering what we want them to deliver without question, but I want you. I want them to know that they are valued here, and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. Uh, and I have this habit of um, not caring too much about chain of command because 
there's no chain of command up my way because I'm at the top of my tree, right? They can only go <laughs> the other way. Uh, and um, I have this habit of engaging with people in between and at the very bottom, uh, which I think initially some people who were higher up did not really like that, but I got to them eventually as well, so they were happy about that. But the reason why I do that is because not just that I want, but it's because I want to have a feel of what's going on in my organization. I can't do that just from reading executive reports from the chief constable and his team. That can only tell me so much, but by what, if you are a sentient human being, if you are someone who's got an inkling of emotional intelligence, you walk around an organ, a building, you would just, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a feeling, you can just tell. It's what I call, it's what I call the radar. So it's social awareness is essentially what we're talking about. And I say, if you if you master yourself first, you've really got to understand yourself, understand what your emotions are, how your emotions affect your behaviours. And those emotions that affect your behaviours um, uh, adversely, you need to fix that. So you need to change some habits, some ch- thinking habits, mind habits, and even physical habits. When you've done that, then you switch on this radar. And this radar is really about finding out the nuances you know, what's going on the subtext of the organization in your team, not what's written in your policy, not what's written in some executive report, not what's written on the post, the, the fancy posters on the wall. What's really going on? What's the kind of language that people are using? Where are people frustrated and what are people frustrated or, ha- or happy about? You know, really understand that, really feel that. And when you've got that, you've got a pulse on the organization. We really have to develop this culture in British working environment and increasingly within uh, within any working environment in the world where we actually allow people to be people in work rather than a number on a payroll sheet. I, I can't think of anything more um, dehumanizing. I can't think of anything more so destroying. And I can't think of anything more... Um, negative on people's well-being and productivity than to feel invisible in their workplace. And anything that can be done to make people feel, you know, we know who you are, is is only going to be worthwhile. And I think particularly since the pandemic, people have recalibrated their priorities and what's important for them right now is to feel psychologically safe, to feel appreciated, valued, heard and seen. These are the kind of things that people are looking for. And that's why we've got the great resignation. That's why people are leaving, you know, talent is leaving organisations because they're not feeling that they are being seen and being valued. And, and I think you're absolutely right. We need to see people for what they are, human beings, and embrace them as human beings and also embrace within that the fact that human beings are complex by nature. What one person thinks and does is going to be different to what another person thinks and does because they've had different journeys in life. And it's if a, if an organisation can embrace that aspect, that thought, that idea, then actually it's a difficult journey for the organisation to make. But when they make that journey, on the other side of it is is incredible. And then some people will argue, oh yeah, but you know, that's a costly exercise. You know, how can, if you've got an organisation of 40,000 people, how can you try to adapt to 4,000 people? Well, well, you do it every day in your own work of life. You know, you make it sound like it's rocket science. All I'm saying here is you come to work feeling like you are a human being, not a uniform. 
afford other people the same privilege. It's really not that hard. It really isn't, because what we're talking about is human nature here, and that is natural to all of us, right? <laughs> but we make it so scientific. Just be, exactly right, exactly right. <laughs> you know, just let, let's just be humans. It doesn't have to be, you know, just, and it's not about, oh, let's just be nice and pally, but no, of course, we all have a job to do, and everybody knows that they have to deliver on, 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 on jobs, you know, um, but ultimately, I feel that people do the best when they have a sense of self wherever they are. Um, and and as, a, as a commissioner and as an employer, as a, as a boss around here, I just want everyone to, to know that, yes, this guy's got power to make things happen. But actually, I just like the fact that he's human. Uh, and like I said at the beginning, it takes wisdom to know when to wield your power. I very rarely had to have to use that. I've had to use that on a couple of occasions um, when it became necessary. And it was always, always when it was time to fix a problem for someone. It's never had to be to get a policy through, to get... No, 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 no. It's never had to be that because we've been able to work in a collegiate way to get things over the line. And in some cases, even though I didn't have to, I understood that it's okay for me to actually, I don't have to fight over everything. Not everything needs to be about, I, I'm, I'm quite cool with, you know, stepping down on an idea and let the chief have his way. I don't mind that. I, I don't mind. But the time when I've had to actually wield my influence the most have been when I needed to unblock something for someone. Without, without which, probably nothing would have changed. We haven't even touched policing, really, but the goal that has come out is around leadership, and that can apply to whichever organisation you might be in right now. Uh, I, I think one of the points Fessus was making, remember that every single person in your organisation is a human being, and as a human being, they want to feel valued, appreciated, heard and seen. And if you can nail that then you will have a far better organisation, including the, the, the ability to come out of a crisis, the ability to, to, to affect your bottom line and the ability to perform better as an organisation. Festus, thank you so much for your wisdom. Really, really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.